Verse 15 summarizes for us the very core substance of what the Lord Jesus preached throughout his earthly ministry. I find it very significant that he preached this sermon after coming from the wilderness temptation and trial with Satan himself. And it would seem that necessity put him out into the public arena. Verse 14 tells us that immediately after the imprisonment of John the Baptist, the, the messenger had been taken away, the forerunner had been taken away, and now the one whom he prepared the way for stepped into the arena and stepped into the limelight. John's ministry lasted only for a few months, but many people think just a very short period of time before he was martyred. And although John was taken away, the one whom he declared came to proclaim the message that John had preached so faithfully in the wilderness. The messenger was silenced, but the message was still being proclaimed. And that's wonderful to know all over the world in 2022, there were many faithful messengers, brethren and sisters, who did not meet in the comfort of lovely buildings as you and I meet in, and who actually did lay down their lives for the gospel and for the faith once delivered unto the saint. But the message is still being proclaimed and the word is still going forth because that is the will of Christ. And the message that is being proclaimed is the message of repentance. As the Lord Jesus began his public ministry, he spoke on the message of repentance. Simply he said, repent ye, plural, and believe the gospel. When we talk about the kingdom of God being at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand when this wonderful message is being proclaimed. And here in Coleraine, as in so many other places, up and down the length and breadth of our province this evening, you have the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God through the message that is being proclaimed that opens the kingdom to sinners. Repenting and believing the gospel of God's saving grace. If the Lord Jesus commenced with this message, he concluded with it. I love those verses there in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. And he's speaking now to the disciples and he's commissioning them to go in his place. John is off the scene. The Lord Jesus now has finished his earthly ministry. And he looks at those apostles, those pillars of the New Testament church. And he said to them, you now go and proclaim this message. And did they have a new message? No, it was still the message that John the Baptist preached. It was the message that the Lord Jesus Christ preached. And he said to them in Luke 24, 46, Thus it is written, Thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's the message. The message has not changed. It is still Christ. It is still his cross. It is still the message of repentance that is to be proclaimed at home and abroad. Wherever the Lord sends us, it's still this wonderful message that is summarized for us here. The Lord Jesus put this as the alpha, the first letter of the spiritual alphabet, as it were, which every believer has to learn. We're going back to the very basic rudimentaries of the gospel and it behoves us, brethren and sisters, never to leave it. Always keep to the basics. Always keep to these great fundamentals. And when he concluded, he just reiterated the same to his church and to his apostles. He knew that repentance 
was to the spiritual life of the individual and the believers, the beginning and the ending of the message. So at the beginning of the year, and I hope at the end of the year, there's a man of God in this pulpit, and he's going to preach the message of repentance to the nations. And he starts here at your home place, here. This will spiritualize, we'll say this is your home Jerusalem. This is where the message has to be proclaimed. The gospel preacher ought never to tire of proclaiming what the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed. There are many today uh, and they want to entertain people with some sort of nuance, some sort of philosophy, some sort of psychology. I don't know any of that stuff. I only know Mark 1 and verse 15. This is the message that Jesus left his church to proclaim and I want to consider with it I want to consider it again with you this evening because repentance is the key for you to enter in to the kingdom of God. So what do we learn about it? Well, firstly, let's consider uh, the causes of repentance. I think we have to step back a little here and say that true evangelical repentance, it is of gospel origin. And that's an important point to make. It's of grace it's not of works. The reformers put it like this, that repentance was not born near Mount Sinai, rather Mount Zion. And though it's a duty required of all men, evangelical repentance is not brought forth as a mere matter of duty. It's not something that we can just crunch out. It's not something that we can just force out in and of ourselves. The law in and of itself does not make provision even for repentance. Do you know that? The law says this, do and live. And if you don't do, you have to die. There's no equivocation in it. If you cannot live up to the standard of the law of God, there's no mitigation of the law, as it were, to make it easier for you or for me. When we fall short of what the law of God requires, then the law says the soul that sinneth it shall die. There's no alternative. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The law pronounces its deadly curse on all who break even the smallest of its precepts. It offers no escape from the awesome judgment of God upon those who dare to transgress his holy law. Don't go away from the meeting tonight thinking, I'm not as bad as others, therefore my judgment will be less. That would be totally wrong for you to conclude. The judgment of God rests upon you tonight in your unsaved, ungodly condition. And there are many souls, sadly, tragically, who will go out into a lost sinner's hell from gospel pews with the gospel in their ears. Repentance is of gospel origin. The gospel uses the law as a means of conviction, as a reason for the soul to repent. And if repentance is to be obtained, where is it found? It's found at Mount Calvary, not at Mount Sinai. I would thank God tonight for the gospel. We, we read, Paul took this whole theme up. And remember, as we said this morning, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was taught at the school of Gamaliel. He was a man versed in all of the law. And yet this is what he said in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped 
and all the world may become guilty before God. Is it not a, a, a wide sweeping statement? All of the world, men and women, are guilty before Almighty God. As we stand before the law of God, what does God declare? Guilty. Guilty. From the youngest to the oldest, guilty. From the womb to the grave, guilty. Therefore, he said in verse 20, By the deeds of the law shall there no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. It's the law of God that exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. Repentance is of a gracious origin, not just a gospel origin. It cannot be produced in the heart of man apart from the grace of God. 250 years ago, Newton wrote Amazing Grace. It's still amazing. And it will always be amazing. It's the amazing grace of God that renews the heart. Renews the heart. The sinner cannot repent in and of himself. Man can sin. He continue in sin. But he can't leave sin. Do you know that? You can't leave sin unless God enables you to leave it. And that's why people cling on to their sin, because they can do nothing else. They can't leave it unless God breaks the hold of it. And it's only God in regeneration and in renewal of their heart can break the hold that sin has off their heart. So, if you ever desire to repent, it has to be one of grace not one of self. The natural man can imitate repentance, of course. We're not saying that. There's many imitations. There's many false imitations out there today. Self can produce remorse, but remorse is not repentance. I think of Judas. Judas was full of remorse, but he never repented. It can generate even a resolve, feeble resolve at, at this turn of the year. Sometimes we all, we all make New Year's resolutions, but we all have to confess our resolve is very feeble. Very feeble. It can even lead to partial reform. So you can partially clean up the life, but partial cleaning up the life, partial turning away from whatever sin holds the life will not free the life from that sin. However unaided, however unaided nature, can never create new life in the soul. So when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about the quickening of the Spirit of God in the soul. We're back again to what Jesus spoke about in John's Gospel, chapter 3, that you must be born again. You must have that life from on high. It's the life from on high that breaks the stranglehold of sin in the soul. We read in Acts 5, 31, that God hath exalted him with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. And then it says to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. Every believer in this meeting tonight, just in case the flesh would puff us up and we think more of ourselves and we ought to think of ourselves, I want you to stop for a little moment tonight and just to thank God that he gave you the gift of repentance. Because if he hadn't have given it to you, you never would have repented. Oh, the wonder of grace. All eternity. We're going to praise him for his amazing grace unto us. It has often been said 
that nature may make the eyes weep, but it cannot make the heart bleed. Nature can bid you mend your ways, but it can't renew your heart. This is the supernatural work of Almighty God. How we, we rejoice tonight in a gospel that transforms souls by the mighty power of the grace of God. It's not just your resolve. It's not you making a decision. It's God working in you. God working in you. Breaking the stranglehold of sin in you. This is the gospel. And this is what causes sinners to repent. And without that, none of us could ever repent. We just bow before the Almighty tonight and we thank him. If you have sorrow over sin, you thank him tonight that he gave you the sorrow. Because without that sorrow, you'd be lost and doomed for all eternity. I want to consider secondly with you, what then are the, the, the characteristics of true repentance? The, we thought there, are, there, there is an invitation. And there is an invitation of repentance even in the broad evangelical church today. But the old divines of a bygone age, they were excellent at analyzing what were the constituent parts of repentance. And, and from them, we're able to understand what are the true characteristics of evangelical repentance. The first one is illumination. Man by nature does not repent because he doesn't know himself to be guilty. He doesn't even know he's guilty. God says he has declared the whole world guilty before him, but man is blind. He's so, he's so engrossed by the sin that has taken his heart, he's absolutely blind to those very acts. There are acts of omission of the law, and man sees nothing in his wrongdoing. He, he thinks he's doing well. There are acts of commission, and he doesn't see the enormity of the offense. He, he thinks it's just a trivial thing. It's a trivial thing to, to trifle with the law of God and to break the law of God and to sin and to go on sinning. But in grace, God touches the spiritual eyes of the individual and they become aware of the first time of the guilt, of the shame of the lawbreaker. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, well, I don't have any shame. I don't have any guilt in my mind of, of what anything I have ever done. If you haven't, there's something you should weep over. There's something you should really cry over. Our own confession of faith, I was looking this up. There's a whole chapter in it, you know, about repentance. And it talks here about sin, the dangerous nature of sin. It talks about the filthiness of sin. It talks about the odiousness of sin. All of those very vivid descriptive terms. The odiousness of the sinful heart. You would never go out to witness to someone like that and say, do you know that you have got a very odious heart within you? But that's what God says. God looks into the heart and that sin in the heart is just odious. But it's not until God touches the heart, the individual is enabled to see what the heart is. And maybe you don't see it. Or maybe you're beginning to see it. If you're beginning to see it, that's something for which we praise God this evening. Because we know God is working in your heart and God is working in your life. Those first, those first movings of the Spirit of God in the life of the individual bring the individual to see what they are before Almighty God. This is what God does 
in illuminating the soul of the individual and making them aware of their sin before him. That which before was precious now becomes vile. And that which was vile now is seen in all of its ugliness. If you and I could only see ourselves in our sin as we really are, we would be very different people. That's why on the judgment day, we have that great picture in the book of Revelation that, that those mighty men, those men who have the power, who wield the authority in the world, when they're before the Lord, they'll call for the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the face of the Almighty. If the mighty men of the world can't hide their sin before God, are you going to do it? It's an impossibility. Next to illumination comes humiliation. Once a sinner sees himself, herself, as they really are before God, they're humbled. They're humbled. And and maybe you have to be humbled tonight. Maybe God has to touch your heart. God has to show you how odious your sin is in his sight for God to break your heart and for God to bring it right down low for you to be humbled. Remember the story which the Lord Jesus told of two men and they're going up to the worship of God. One, the Bible tells us, is a Pharisee and the other is a publican, the tax collector, the man who was lifting the money for the Romans, for the occupying uh, authorities. And they're going up to the worship of God and to the temple. And the Pharisee was so full, he was so full of himself. And sadly, there are many people that come to church and they're so full of themselves. Still today, and if that's you in this meeting in Cool Rain, then all of that pretense needs to be stripped away. You need to see who you are before God, not what you think you are before others. And who you are before God is something very different to what you are before others. This man came into the building and oh, he, he, he wanted to parade his virtues before God and he wanted to parade his virtues before others and he's thanking God that he's not like other men are but the old publican he comes in he stands at the back he wouldn't even lift up his head he smites his breast he says God be merciful to me a sinner if you haven't got that far tonight you're still outside the kingdom if you've never been humbled to see what you are. I think of Job. There's a lot of talking in the book of Job. Chapter after chapter of talking and narrative and discussion. And, and God brings Job to the end of himself. And in chapter 42, there's no more talking to be done. And what does Job say? I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Now mine eye seeth thee. And what did he say as a result of all of that? Wherefore I abhor myself and repent. I abhor myself and repent. It's the work of the Spirit of God uh, to show men and women how odious sin is to humble them, to humble them. And may God keep all the saints humble and the preacher humble. And may God for those who have not yet come to know Christ, may they be humble tonight. May God break into your life tonight. Young boy or girl, young man or woman, dear soul in the gathering, may you be humble to see 
that you're not what you think you are before others. You're just what you really are before Almighty God. The third characteristic of follow one, it is detestation. The soul must come not only to sorrow over sin, the soul must come to hate that sin. To hate the house where the flesh was once indulged in. To hate, as put it in those biblical terms, the very garments that are spotted by the flesh. There is no repentance where, where people talk lightly about sin. We, we live in a very light, frivolous age. And people today talk lightly about sin. And sin now in many parts of the evangelical church is courted and is explained away. But there's no explaining away once a sinner is smitten by Almighty God. They'll hate that which grieves God. Cowper's words come to mind, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be. Help me to tear it from my throne and worship only thee. All of our hearts, as Calvin once put it, they're factories that produce idols. They're full of idols. And we love our idols. But God has to tear them down. Each one. Another, character, another characteristic of true repentance is what the shorter catechism puts as apprehension. What does that mean? An apprehension of the understanding of the mercy of God in Christ. You know what a glad gospel thing there is to proclaim. I wouldn't want to come to Coleraine and tell you about the law and the thunders of the law and the judgment of the law. And it's all true, men and women. It's all true. This world one day will be judged by the law of God and, and the smallest sin will, will, will incur the severest penalty of the law. But what about the mercy? The mercy of God in Christ. That's the, the gospel preacher's silver trumpet. What a grand gospel thing to proclaim. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. What a wonderful invitation. There's mercy with God. There's mercy for David. We sang that in that opening uh, psalm, Psalm 51, that great penitential psalm. Here was a man who committed adultery. Here was a man who was culpable in the murder of another innocent man and who covered it up for years. Here was a man who did all of those things, but he found mercy. And it doesn't matter whatever the sin you're engaged in tonight, or the sin, the burden that's bowing down your heart, bowing down your life. I want to assure you there's mercy. There's mercy with God. We read in John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace to those least deserving of it. Grace to you this evening through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's grace through him. There's mercy through him. Mercy with God through the cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cleansing from every sin and from every stain. Made free, set clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's the mercy that there is in the gospel. May we never tire of proclaiming it. May we never tire of witnessing it and of telling others about it. In Acts 2, 37, remember, as, as Peter drew to a conclusion, his sermon on the day of Pentecost, this is what happened. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? 
Maybe that's your question tonight. Okay, well, what do I do? That's just the same answer. Peter said unto them, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent. Another characteristic that I'll mention, and it's transformation. Repentance, as was, has, was once put, repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. The truly penitent individual, that life will be reformed, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. It's no use professing to repent on Sunday and then going back to the sin on Monday. It's no use professing to follow Christ on the Sabbath day and then following sin and self the other six days. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Glorious transformation. The gospel brings a glorious transformation to these unworthy lives of ours. It transforms us. That's what repentance does. This great evangelical faith, this great evangelical grace, it changes us inwardly and transforms us outwardly. Let's just think as we close out tonight of the companions of true repentance. What accompanies it? Well, we read here again in verse 15, repent ye and believe the gospel. It's obvious. The companion to repentance is that of faith. The old Puritans used to meet for conferences and they asked a lot of questions one of the other and the older men talked together and the younger men listened and, and they learned from the conversation of the older divines. And at one of their meetings, the profound question was asked and has been asked many, many times ever since, which was first in the soul, faith or repentance? Now, if I was to go around you this evening, well, what is first in the soul, faith or repentance? I'll I, I guarantee we'll, we'll get a, a variety of answers. Some one said, man could not truly repent of sin until he believed in God and had a sense of the Savior's love. Others said he could not have faith till he repented of his sin, for he must hate sin before he could trust in Christ. But there's one old man present, and this is what he said. Brethren, he said, I don't think you can ever settle this question. It would be something like asking whether when an infant is born, the circulation of the blood or the beating of the pulse comes first. Said he, it seems to me that faith and repentance, they're simultaneous. They're one at the same time. There can be no true repentance without faith and there never was true faith yet without repentance. I don't know where you sit in that argument. It doesn't really matter. It's not a, a fundamental of the Christian faith. But I think this brother was correct in his assessment. Faith and repentance, they're born together. They're born together. They've been compared to Siamese twins. They're born together and they can't live asunder. There never was faith without repentance. There cannot be repentance without faith. They're in the same house. And they'll live every day in that same house, in that same heart, in that same life until the dying day. 
Uh, let me ask you tonight, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you can't have repentance unless you have faith. You can't have faith unless you have repentance. There's something that always goes with repentance also, and that's confession. That's why we sang from Psalm 51. Confession holds nothing back. It wasn't until David was confronted with his sin, he'd been holding back, he'd been keeping it back, he'd been hiding it all that time. What, what, what a weight it must have been in his mind. But confession took it out of the bosom, brought it before Almighty God, and got it cleansed and forgiven. I'm glad you don't have to come to a confessional box to repent. You don't have to come to a preacher to repent. Over the years, sometimes people said to me, a preacher, could I tell you something? <clears throat> I need to get something off my chest. Well, I said, you better tell it to God before you tell it to me. Because I can do nothing about it. It's only God who can forgive your sins. You don't have to come to me and tell me your sin. I could do nothing for you. But tell it to Jesus. Confess it before the Almighty God. And you'll find forgiveness and pardon through that precious blood that we were singing about tonight. Holiness is a, a companion of the penitent. Repentance, as it were, has been described as clearing away all the rubbish, clearing away all the garbage. And now we can build a new. You're not building new life when you're clinging on to the old life. You have to let go. You have to repent. You have to give it up to God. And there'll never be that holiness of life until you give up that which is holding you back to the old life. There are many people today across this land of ours and they're held by one thing or another. They're addicted. They're, they're ensnared. The devil has them. And we all have them, brethren and sisters, in all of our families and in all of our, our congregations. They're there. But there'll never be holiness until there is repentance. And where there is true repentance, there will be the fruit of holiness. And what does repentance also bring with it? It brings with it peace. Peace. The repentant sinner knows a peace which nobody else can enjoy. Uh, and don't content yourself tonight with an outward profession, something that you've, some, some form of words that you've used with your lips years ago, but it's never brought you peace to your heart. Repentance, it takes different forms and, and, and shapes. I wanted to say that to you before we, we just conclude this evening. <clears throat> different people will have different experiences. Yes, they all repent. But I want you to think of a Manasseh, a man who filled all Jerusalem with blood and devastation and destruction. Now think of how Manasseh repented and God forgave him. But I want you to think of a young Timothy brought up in a godly home. He had a different repentance to what Manasseh had. Sometimes I think in the Christian evangelical church, we make a mistake. We bring someone along to give one of these very dramatic testimonies. And some young person sitting in the meeting thinks, I don't have a testimony like that. I mustn't be saved. Don't judge your experience by somebody else's experience. It's your experience. It's your repentance. We're not looking for what happened in the heart of Manasseh, in the heart of a Timothy. We're not thinking of what happened Jeremiah. 
Where did he repent? Where was he born anew? Right in the womb. What a transformation happened. We put him beside the Apostle Paul. Their two experiences are totally different. God deals with us as individuals. And he deals with us providentially. If you're a Manasseh, you need to repent. But if you're a Timothy, you need to repent. But the experience will be different. But the repentance is one and the same. It's good to hear testimony. I'm not saying it's not good to hear testimony. But it's wrong to measure everyone's experience by that testimony. And don't make that mistake. True repentance, as has rightly been said, does not consist of what men make of it, but of what God says of it. It's not what others make of it. It's what God says of it. Now I want to ask you as we're closed tonight, before we pray, can you tell me if it's to ask you going out through the door, young man, young woman, older person, have you repented? Because, you know, repentance is something that you'll experience in your life to the day that you die. Repentance. May the Lord bless you tonight. May the Lord make us to be those penitents that Jesus spoke of. And may truly work the wonders of grace in all of our lives. And may there not be one in this gathering in cool rain this evening. That tonight the kingdom of God has come to you. That through faith and repentance that you'll not enter into it. Let us please unite our hearts in prayer as we close our gathering. Heavenly Father and eternal God, we thank thee tonight for the, the wonder and the reality of evangelical repentance. We, we thank thee that the kingdom of God is near. We thank thee that the Lord Jesus is near. We thank thee that the way to enter into that kingdom is through repentance and believing the gospel. We pray this evening there will be some soul or souls in the gathering who wrought upon by the Spirit of God, will repent, will cry to God from the depths of their heart, be merciful to me. And that there will be those this evening, here in Coleraine, who will enter into God's kingdom through simple faith in the Redeemer and in repenting of their sins. We thank thee, Lord, for the opportunity to preach this message that Jesus preached to preach this message that was given to the apostles to preach and that is still the message of the Christian church. We pray that you'll keep us faithful to its public declaration. So separate us tonight one from the other. In thy fear and with thy favour, take us out into the week that lies ahead in the fullness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some small measure we use us further to the glory of thy Son and in the extending of thy kingdom in the hearts and lives of those for whom the Lord Jesus suffered, bled and died. Hear us now, we beseech thee. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with each one both now and evermore.
Amen.